0: Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Reach Life Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Our mission is changing life by making, growing, and unleashing gospel centered disciples of Jesus. For more information, resources, or to connect with us online, visit www.reachlifechurch.org. This week we are beginning a new series um, where we were going to be going, uh, walking verse by verse through the book of Genesis, my favorite book of the Bible. And some of you have asked, well, wait a minute, weren't we going through the gospel of John? Well, hold on, we'll get back to John. We're gonna do that around uh, Resurrection Sunday. So we'll get, we'll get back to John, trust me. Um, but we're gonna be right now in the book of Genesis. And James and I were talking about, um, you know, one of the best ways, those of you who have um, ever taught anything, you know, one of the best ways to teach something and for people to digest it and kind of get it in is to, to lay out the big scope, and say, like, here's the big outline. And then that way, when we come to hit the details, it makes more sense. There's a little context. So that's what we're going to be doing today uh, in the book of Genesis. We're going to be doing a flyover of the 50 chapters of the book of Genesis. Don't leave. Right. Uh, now, it's, again, it's just going to be highlights. It's going to be like, like uh, skipping a stone over a deep pond, right? So we're just going to kind of hit the highlights, but hopefully when later we go through these in the coming months, weeks and months, uh, these verse by verse journey through the gospel or the the book of Genesis, you'll see the gospels in there too, um, things will make a little more sense. And so for our opening text, I wanted us to begin with Genesis chapter one, and we're going to be doing verses one through 10, but I'm not going to be reading it up here. We're going to let some astronauts read it uh, way back at the Apollo 8 mission The first time the astronauts uh, orbited the moon, um, they read scripture. And so they're going to be reading the King James Version. You can follow along in your copy of the Word of God. And that's going to be Genesis chapter 1. Uh, Listen to the astronauts from Apollo 8.
1: now approaching uh, lunar sunrise, and uh, for all the people back on Earth, the crew of Apollo 8 has a message that we would like to send to you. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light. Day was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. And God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters. Let it divide the waters from the waters, and God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, and the evening and the morning was the second day. <laughs> God said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land Earth, and the gathering together of the waters called He Seas. God saw that it was good. And from the crew of Apollo 8, we close with good night, good luck, a merry Christmas, and God bless all of you, all of you on the good Earth.
0: As you heard him indicate, that was Christmas morning, uh, way back when, as they sort of crested over and saw what they called lunar sunrise, the sun rising uh, from the perspective of the moon, saw the earth there, they had lost all scientific description. They wanted to describe what they saw. They didn't refer to poetry. They didn't refer to music. They had to refer to the word of God. And um, I used that, um, that video this morning, hoping to convey to you sort of the majesty of what we're going to embark on and seeing who God is and what he's done in the book of Genesis. Um, that's going to be our, our goal today. Um, so why, why did we pick the book of Genesis? Why study this book? Well, it's the first one. It's always a great place to, to study, right? But there's also a thing called the law of first mention. So when an author's writing a book, particularly a book like this, a historical book, the first mention of, of things kind of sets the tone for how those things should be viewed later. And the book of Genesis is first mention of anything at all. It's in the beginning, God, right? So everything is mentioned first there, creation, man, woman, Sabbath, marriage, home, childhood, raising children, sin, government, all, all of these things are first mentioned here in the book of Genesis. Genesis actually also looks forward and kind of anticipates false doctrine and lays out the, uh, a firm foundation of sound doctrine so that we're not deceived. The book of Genesis is extremely powerful. That's, that's why it's my favorite book, and I hope you guys will come to see it um, as fondly as, as I do. Um, the book of Genesis is considered part of the book of the law in the Hebrew Scriptures, but its genre is history. Its genre is history. It's an actual account of historical events, and this is the key to kind of understand everything that we move forward. So Genesis is the account of the beginning. It's referred to the book uh, referred to as the book of beginnings. The beginning of what? Thank you. Yeah, everything. Yeah, the beginning of time, matter, space, people, math, physics, everything. Uh, it was begun right here in the book of Genesis. So that brings me to kind of the overall theme, if you're a note taker. Now listen, you're going to have to listen fast today. We've got 50 chapters, okay? Listen up. Um, but this is the overall theme of the message today. And if, as you see these things, if you need, just need to take pictures for to do it quick, that's fine. I, when we go through the book of Genesis, I'm going to uh, uh, be reading that. I encourage you to turn it in your Bibles with me. When I do New Testament ref, cross-references, just look at the screen. It'll be easier. Um, so anyway, here's the, the overall theme of the message today, and that is this. God is the creator of all things. He's the author of history and the savior of sinners. That's the overall theme of the message today. And like I said, since Genesis is describing history, I want to briefly put some, uh, say something about history. History is the story of the sovereign God working his eternal plan through the choices of free creatures. That's what we're going to see play out today. We're going to see God working his sovereign plan. And, And to me, it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. Now, when I say that God is sovereign, that just means he's king. He's king over all things, including us. Um, but to be sure, as, as your pastors and as a church, we affirm that, yes, God is sovereign king. In his sovereignty, God has given you uh, some choices to make that matter, uh, and he's given you some choices to make in reference to him, and we will live now and eternally with those choices that we make about God, and so history is his. Right? Again, he is the sovereign king, and he's ordained that we get to participate. It's also a story. It has a direction, and you're going to see that in the book of Genesis today. There is a point. There is like this epic journey, this story that begins at the beginning, uh, at the creation of all things, and ends at the consummation of all things, at the end of, of recorded history. And all of this eternal plan centers on the good news, about Jesus. Every single bit of it is centered around, Jesus is like the hub of all of history. Uh, This cosmic drama related to the gospel, the good news about Jesus, begins right here in the book of Genesis. So today, we're going to break it down in some, I hope, or some digestible chunks. Five uh, words are going to describe the book of Genesis for us. Five C's. Again, we're going to see that all of them Uh, center on Jesus. Um, You'll see that even more when we go verse by verse in the coming weeks. But the first C, the first major chunk we're going to look at in the book of Genesis is creation. Makes sense, right? Genesis 1 verse 1 says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Um, This is uh, what philosophers call creation ex nihilo, out of nothing, right? God, there was God and nothing else. Then God made creation, creator and then creation. He did it all by his command. He did it all by his cause. Um, That cause is called the Logos in John chapter 1, if you're a note taker. John chapter 1 verses 1 through 4 parallel Genesis chapter 1 that we just heard the astronauts of Apollo 8 read. John chapter 1 verses 1 through 4 say this, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. That's logos, word. He was in the beginning with God. Listen to this, verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. This is revealing, John is revealing to us that this cause, this creation of this, what we might say is a force of creation is not a force at all. It's a person. And John is telling us that that person is God the Son. His name is Jesus, the author of creation. John was asking and answering the philosophical question of his day and of our day. Where did all this stuff come from? We don't have to ask that question anymore. We have the answer. It came from, the creation came from the Creator. Uh, All things are here and kept here because of Him and by Him. Um, so, and we as as mankind are sort of the crown jewel of God's creation. We were made in His image, which means we are His like co-regents on the earth. We have His signet ring. We have authority. We are His representatives. We are also more fundamentally made for a relationship with Him, right? We are made for that. That's what we are made. We were made to live an unbroken relationship with God, our Creator with one another, and with this amazing earth that we've been placed on. We've, we've, we're meant to be in an unbroken relationship with those things, but Genesis chapter 3, if you want to turn there in your Bibles, gives us the next major chunk that we'll cover today, and that's the next C, corruption. That harmony did not last. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5 say this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You'll not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This is where all the trouble started right here. This is it. God's very good creation was now soiled. It was marred. It was stained, forever darkened by our mankind's rebellion. God gave man a choice. Why else would he put the tree in the garden, right? He says, obey God and live. Disobey God, the author of life, and you will die. And we were somehow entranced by the idea of not lovingly worshiping God, but being God. We wanted to be like God. And this was the sin of of the enemy himself. He also wanted to ascend to God's throne, and he's, in essence, invited us to join him in the rebellion. We did. We joined him in the rebellion. We disobeyed God. We brought a curse. The result of this uh, is called the fall. You may be familiar with that. It's literally, you've heard the term fall from grace. That's what it refers to. We have fallen from grace. Every problem that we face today, every turmoil going on in your soul is a result of this event. Our first parents rebelled against God, and now so do every one of us. It's our default setting it's what we do. Um, and Romans chapter 8, again, don't, don't flip there, but Romans chapter 8 says that this the fall affected all of creation. It says that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs because God himself subjected the creation to the processes of decay. It's the result of the fall, and it, again, is not just the creation that's fallen. We see that. We get hurricanes and Um, Diseases and things like that, but that fall reached to our own hearts and reaches to our own hearts and souls. We too are fallen. Just look at how we treat the Lord and how we treat one another. Again, Romans chapter 5, though, tells us that we couldn't reach for God. We could not even try to reach for God, but God provided a Savior as an answer to the fall. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 and 17 say, Therefore, Just as sin came into the world through one man, okay, so you see Paul's laying the foundation for the gospel in Genesis, isn't it? Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man. Jesus Christ. So this very real historical man, Adam, rebelled against God, and now so do we. And this very real historical God man, Jesus Christ, has given the solution for our rebellion, and he offers forgiveness of our sins. Um, this, Jesus' victory over Satan and sin and death was foreshadowed in Genesis 3, chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 15. You see that in your Bibles, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where God says to the, to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Notice that this promised deliverer was the offspring of the woman, not the offspring of a man. Jesus was born of a virgin, and he would crush the head of the enemy after being wounded for our transgressions. So everything that we're going to talk about in the, in the book of Genesis for, henceforth will, will hinge on this prophecy of God sending the Messiah to be our Savior. We see in chapter 4, there's, you just want to keep flipping in your Bibles with me. In chapter 4, we see the account of Cain and Abel and it establishes what proper worship of God looks like. Founded right there in the book of Genesis. And in a few weeks, I believe that's, uh, I don't have my glasses. Steve, you normally, that's Steve Linhart right there, isn't it? I know where he sits. I think Steve is going to be doing that message. I'm pretty excited about that. Actually, in in chapter 5, there are some fascinating things that in that Chapter that you would normally skip over that says he begot this person and he was this old and begot that person. We'll get to that later, but your jaw will drop when we get to that chapter, but we'll save that. Chapter 6 is where we have the next major chunk that we're going to look at through the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 6, we find catastrophe. This is the account of the flood. Look at beginning verse 12. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark. It's an amazing account if you've ever been through Genesis chapter 6. It is stark. But we see our own salvation pictured here in this account of the flood. We see a warning by a messenger from God, Noah, right? Telling, preaching for over hundred years, preaching. Noah, preaching. And also with Jesus, the coming Messiah, John the Baptist, out in the wilderness, preaching. God promises safety from judgment in that ark. God promises safety from judgment in the Messiah. God, there's only one door on that ark. When you see it described, there's one door to safety from judgment. And we see with Jesus is the only way to the Father. And we see that um, people were saved by placing their faith in God and getting on the ark. Um, And we can see that. The New Testament confirms, again, don't flip there, but you you can write this down. Uh, The New Testament confirms in several places this parallel between the account of the flood and our salvation. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7 says this By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. And so do we. We become heirs of righteousness that comes by faith in the Savior. Turn over to Genesis chapter 8, verse 4. I want to show you something. You were like, okay, I say it in here all the time. Do you guys know that God wrote a book? Okay, so nothing, you're like, yes, we do. We get it. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, So God doesn't put anything in there by mistake. Check this out. Genesis chapter 8, verse 4. God records the specific date that the ark landed. Check it out. And the ark rested in the 17th month, on the 17th day of the month, upon the mountains of Ararat. Fantastic. Praise God. Who cares? Here's why you should care. The 17th, or the the seventh month in the Hebrew calendar is the month of Nisan. Mental note right? And so it's the 17th of Nisan on the Hebrew calendar that the ark landed, this vessel of salvation. So why would God record that? Uh, Again, there's no mistakes. There are no, there's no chance in scripture. God does everything on purpose. And I believe he put this here again to show that he is the sovereign king over history and over heaven and earth. The ark, stay with me, the ark marks a new beginning for mankind, right? There's only like Eight people survived that deal. Um, And so it's a a new beginning for mankind. Passover, Jewish Passover, is a picture of Jesus' blood atonement. We remember that each week when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, right? It's a commitment of Jewish Passover. Passover is celebrated, listen, on the 14th of the month of Nisan. 14th of the month of Nisan. And the morning after that Sabbath of Passover is the Feast of First Fruits. That's the Feast of First Fruits. Check this out. Three days in the tomb means that Jesus rose on the 17th of Nisan, the Feast of First Fruits. So that particular Sunday morning where when women were going to discover the empty tomb, Jesus' resurrection was indeed the first fruits, a new beginning for all of us. So when we examine this new beginning from the ark, this new beginning of the world under Noah, the 17th of Nisan was the anniversary in advance of the first fruits of Jesus giving us a new beginning. This is not a coincidence. God has left his calling card here. The Apostle Paul makes his first fruits connection very clear, very specifically in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 through 23. You'll see that coming on the screen. Paul says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, again a reference to Adam in Genesis, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. You know, it's often said that the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed and that the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. There's one book, there's one author, and it all centers on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, there's, there's one message, and there's, again, a, a lot more that we could say uh, there. Um, hold on. Stay tuned. In the coming weeks, you'll see, you'll see more about that. But in the meantime, man, can I just encourage you to study your Bibles? Don't just read them. Do read them, but also study them. Man, God wrote a book, and it is amazing, um, and I'll be glad to point you to some, um, some great and free Bible study resources. Just, just let me know. So that brings us to the next major chunk in the book of Genesis. We have, we have creation, corruption, catastrophe, and then confusion. Genesis chapter 11, you may want to flip over there. Genesis chapter 11, what's taking place here is the people have gotten off the ark Great, fantastic, we're going to start the new world, and they start walking east together. And the historical narrative picks up in Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 4 say this. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Now, wait a minute. After the flood, God had specifically told the humans spread out (laughs) over the earth. They are saying the exact opposite. And under the world's first dictator, a guy named Nimrod, whose name literally means we will rebel, under that guy, they made a confederacy against God. No, we're going to do our own thing. We're going to make a name for ourselves. We're not spreading out. We're building a kingdom right here. And so they tried to build this thing as a gateway to God. These are not stupid people. They weren't building a ladder trying to climb up into heaven. Babylonian history tells us that this was an astrological temple with levels of astral ascension trying to reach godhood in the spiritual realm. And so, God's not going to have any of it. Uh, The people were able to be efficient in their pursuit of evil because they had one language, one communication. And so, what does God do at Babel, which literally means to confuse by mixing? He confuses their languages. He confuses their languages. Um, You know, given more power, there's nothing wrong with technology, there's nothing wrong with power, but because we're sinners, you know what we do? We use those things to sin more efficiently. We do. And so this was actually an act of grace by God. It was God's grace to stop our evil. Um, We're really grateful. Again, God intervene is... Is, is intervening to spare us. Th- think this through with me. It's to accomplish his purpose of redeeming us. If the tower's permitted, there's no scattering, right? If there's no scattering, there are no different people groups. If there are no different people groups, there's no chosen people through whom to bring the Messiah. If there's no Messiah, there's no hope for any of us. Do you see how all this history plays out? God is in control. We can build all the towers we want. He graciously saved us from ourselves there. And again, it was all about Jesus. So let's move forward and look at the next big chunk where God makes an everlasting covenant with one of those people groups through one man and his descendants. The rest rest of the book of Genesis is about God picking this guy, Abraham, his lineage and providing the Messiah through this chosen group of people. That brings us to covenant. Genesis chapter 12. Go ahead and flip over there. Genesis chapter 12. Look at verses 1 through 3. Everybody with me? Take a breath. Everybody good? It's fast-paced, isn't it? It's fast-paced, but I hope you're, you're gaining from it. Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Notice this covenant is God making seven I will statements. God says, I will do this. I will make your name great. I will establish you. I will bless all the earth through you. God is saying, this is what I will do, right? This is God's plan. This is God's program. He's working it all. And from Genesis chapter 12 to the end of the book, um, everything's kind of derived from these little three verses right here, where God says, this is what I'm going to do. And guess what? He does it. He does what he says he will do. Two chapters later, God, you can go ahead and flip over there if you want. Uh, We won't read it, but just so you know where we are. God confirms his covenant with Abraham in an amazing way. I'm so looking forward to this section when we get to go verse by verse. But there's a battle of nine kings in chapter 14. Uh, A group of four kings versus a group of five kings. The group of four kings who are aligned with Yahweh God win. That's how it works. (laughs) They are aligned with God and they win. And following that battle, a a city called Sodom was attacked and Abraham's nephew Lot uh, was taken prisoner. Abraham rescues his nephew, and on the way back, they meet a very significant person um, in a very significant place. They meet a priest king named Melchizedek, and he's, out, he's at the base of Mount Moriah in a place that we later would come to call Jerusalem. Uh, Melchizedek is priest of the Most High God, and he's also a king, and he bears a striking resemblance to Jesus. Uh, we'll talk more about that when we get there. Uh, chapter 15, we see that God reaffirmed this unconditional covenant with Abraham. God, uh, there was, God had Abraham lay out meat, split. God put Abraham in a deep sleep. God himself moved in the form of fire between that meat, saying, listen, this is a unilateral covenant, Abraham. You, have no, you don't need to do anything. In fact, once you go to sleep, let me show you what I'm going to do. God renews this covenant with Abraham. It's all God's doing, and he upholds his covenant. Uh, That's yet again sort of reconfirmed in an oath. Go over to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. This is one of the most pivotal chapters in all the Bible, in my my opinion. Genesis chapter 22, where we see uh, God tells uh, Abraham to take his son, who we normally would picture as a small child, but most scholars think that Isaac was grown, maybe even in his 30s by this time. Um, In Genesis chapter 22, verse 2, God says, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. That sound familiar? And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Remember at the beginning... Of our time together today, I mentioned the idea of the law of first mention. You guys remember me saying that? This is the first place in the entire Bible where the word love is used. 22 chapters in, we hear the word love for the first time, and so this description of love should tell us what love is. Here we see a man, will it being willing to sacrifice his own son. It echoes John three sixteen, which says, "God so loved the world, what that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him would have eternal life." God did give His Son. That should tell us what love is. Um, again, we see Jesus all throughout this account pictured. Uh, this is one of the clearest representations of the gospel in the Old Testament, I believe. Um, Mount Moriah, we might think it's just a mountain, but notice God says, go to the one of the mountains I'm going to show you. Go to the land of Moriah. Mount Moriah, you'll see it coming up. It's a topographical map. It's just what makes my wife happy. She loves cartography. We're both nerds. Isn't that great? Um, so <laughs> this is a topographical map of Mount Moriah. You'll see an outline. Go ahead and bring up that outline there in the middle. Um, And it's kind of a ridge system between two other mountains. And on that ridge, about 600 meters down uh, just above sea level, is a place called Salem. That's where Melchizedek was. Okay. About 741 meters above sea level is where you Bible students may remember that David purchased the threshing floor to build a house for God. Right. That became the Temple Mount later. That's not the top of the ridge, though, at 777 meters, which might be a coincidence. Above sea level, this is where David, or where Isaac, was going to be sacrificed by Abraham. And it's where God did sacrifice his son. That place is Golgotha. Genesis chapter 22, verse 14. says, interestingly, Abraham kind of knew he was acting out prophecy. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And it was. This thing is all about Jesus, you guys. History is about Jesus. Two things should be very clear God is king, and it's all about Jesus. Uh, Isaac would then have a son named Jacob. Uh, whose name would be changed to Israel, which means rule with God. Um, these are the people, God's chosen people to bring the Messiah through. The rest of the Bible, God refers Himself to himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, at the close of the uh, book of Genesis, we see another of Jacob's sons, Joseph, who as we get to that account, you'll see is a brilliant picture of Jesus as well. Uh, Sort of a foreshadowing of Jesus. Joseph was favored by Jacob, so his brothers hated him. And his brothers sold him into Egyptian slavery. And um, Joseph, so then, as a result, was raised as an Egyptian. And he was second in power only to Pharaoh in all of Egypt. God blessed Joseph to to raise him uh, to that level. Again, this shows God's goodness God's sovereignty, God used Joseph's position of power in Egypt to bring in his family, Joseph's family, including his brothers that had sold him into slavery and save them from a drought. Again, God is working through the free choices of human beings to effect his eternal plan. Look at Genesis 50. Genesis 50, we're at the end. Genesis 50. Joseph recognizes exactly what's happening. He tells his brothers, verse 20, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Those people who are kept alive were the people who would eventually bring the Messiah. You see God working here to assure we get the chance to be saved. We place our faith. In the Messiah. So before we leave, I want to finish with a little account, back up one chapter, Genesis 49. Kind of remember our focus. And I want us to remember, you'll see it coming up on the screen God will preside. Preside. What does that mean, preside? Think of, think of uh, if you've ever been in court, I hope not, uh, but they say presiding is the yarnable judge, whomever. Presiding means that you will remain in a seat of authority. And I'm here to tell you, God will preside. And you know what that means for us? We can trust him. We can trust him. Um, Genesis 49 is a record of Jacob, uh, whose name was Israel, uh, prophesying over each of his 12 sons. And it's a weird passage, like, like those prophecies don't make any sense, they're kind of strange. Um, but in the prophecy over the tribe of Judah, Jacob said this, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him, Shiloh, shall be the obedience of the people. Now that word Shiloh is recognized by Jewish rabbis as referring to the Messiah. Well, big deal, right? Yes, very big deal. Let me give you a history lesson in 7 AD or CE, however you want to refer to that, 7 AD, the Romans had removed legal powers from the Jews, and, um, and that's including capital punishment. You say, big deal. Well, that's why the Sanhedrin, the leading Jews, had to appeal to Rome to have Jesus crucified. They didn't have the authority to do that. The Babylonian Talmud, which is Jewish history, it uh, says that when they, the Romans took that power away, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders, walked around in sackcloth and ashes. They were weeping. They were mourning. Why, why? Because they thought God's promise had been broken. They thought prophecy had failed. They said, woe unto us, for the scepter has departed from Judah, and the Messiah has not come. So they're walking around. It's 7 AD. They're thinking, man, um, we haven't seen the Messiah and power's been taken away from us, maybe the Messiah is not coming. Woe to us. God has broken or is not good for his word. But remember the date, 7 AD? Little did they know, up in a tiny little carpenter's shop, in a tiny little city named Nazareth, there was a young boy named Jesus who was indeed the Messiah. The Messiah had come already. The prophecy had been fulfilled. The power had been taken away from the Sanhedrin, yes, but not before the Messiah had come. God was good for his word, and he always is. The Messiah had come. In fact, God had already kept his promise when they were doubting it. Take personal note. For us and our lives, God had already kept his promise when they were, they were doubting it, God himself in the flesh, God the Son, Jesus, was among them, but they didn't know it yet. They didn't know it yet. And so I'd, I'm going to say and ask all of you, God the Father has sent God the Son, the Savior, to the creation he made that we read about in Genesis. The Savior has died in our place. He has risen to prove he's the Savior and that His promise is true, that means that forgiveness and eternal life is available for all of us starting right now. The author of history has spoken. He's made it available to all of us right now. There's a future fact also that all who place their trust in Jesus will spend eternity with Him. Um, So my question today is, do you know Jesus? The author of Time and Space the Savior of the world? Do you, do you know Him as your Savior? Not just a Savior of the world, forgiver of sins, lover of sinners. But do you recognize, I'm a sinner. I need the Savior. Do you recognize that today? If Maybe that sounds foreign to you. If you'd like to talk more about that, Pastor James and I would love to talk with you more about that. At the close of the service, I'll be around here and James will be around here. Come see one of us, please. If you want to know Jesus, we want to help you know Jesus. If you do know Jesus, if Jesus is your Savior, if you're maybe even part of the Reach Life family here, do you realize that God has shaped the very course of history to bring you to himself? You're part of the family of God, and he's placed you in this family of other people of the family of God. Praise him. Maybe this morning you've lost sort of uh, the view that God is who he says he is, that God is indeed good for his word. I hope this morning, as we looked at history, as we looked at Genesis, that you've been reminded that God is who he says he is. And if he is who he says he is, then you are who he says you are. If you're in Jesus, if you've placed your trust in him, then you are his.